Before Lynn Ramsey, there was composer Lorne Balve. For Lorne was the very first guest on Soundtracking Live as part of the British Film Institute's Big Thrill season back in November. We then went on to speak to Lynn at the Glasgow Film Festival with Alex Garland, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury to come soon following a great chat we had after a special screening of Annihilation at the Everyman Cinema in Hampstead in London. I'm Edith Bowman. And you're listening to Soundtracking, the screen music podcast in partnership with the EE BAFTAs. Now, the list of films that Lorne has worked on is mighty impressive, from Dunkirk and the Lego Batman movie to Geostorm. We'll hear examples from all of these films throughout the course of the conversation. He's also produced excellent work for television, with Genius and The Crown amongst his credits. But we begin, as we did on the BFI stage, with a little medley of his compositions. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together and thrilled to welcome Lorne Balfe. I kind of feel we should have had you come in on the last 10 seconds of that, so you kind of arrived at the dun-dun. Rubbed the ego. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Thank you for inviting me. There is so much to talk about because you you are so accomplished across, as I mentioned, not just film but TV and the gaming world as well, and, and huge productions. But I wanted to know when and what it was that made you realise that composing and being part of of that side of of filmmaking you wanted to be part of? Well, I was always around music. Um, My father was a songwriter. We had a recording studio, a residential recording studio, so I was always brought up with Ozzy Osbourne living there and recording. Bad influence at an early age. (laughs) Uh, Apparently, I wasn't allowed to swear around me. That was the rule. Um, Yeah, so that was my background. And then at school... I suppose at school, everybody kind of said you can't do music as a career. All there is is being a teacher. Maybe if you're good enough, you can get into an orchestra. That was it, really. I didn't really know I wanted to do music probably until, I don't know. I I don't think I ever kind of went, I'm going to do this. Yeah. It was just, it happened. Progression of things yeah. and jobs. And, and also, I, just, I, I loved doing music at school. I was dyslexic, so academically I wasn't very good is the word, not clever, but good. Um, <laughs> and um, 
yeah, that was really it. And then I, I think I think having a parent that was in the arts mm -hmm. helped me not feel that it was an odd thing to do. You very kindly brought some clips and things with you today, and I wanted to, I wanted to start with something because this is weirdly how this podcast kind of started in terms of what we're about to see. In this is a great show. Thank you very much. The amount of people I know that listen to this show, and I listen to it. Thank you. It's That's very, very good. Thank you. Um, I was lucky enough to interview J.J. Abrams, yeah. and it was when he was doing Star Trek, and we were just chatting about the soundscape and all that kind of thing, and he told me the story about going to Skywalker Ranch. Mm -hmm. Have you been? No, I've missed out every single time. Really desperate to go. And he said that he sat in a studio and someone played him the opening scene of A New Hope without any sound and music. And he was a bit like, yeah. And it was, he kind of was just then, even though he'd been making films for so long, he just, that was the moment and the clarity of really how important music yeah. and the sound of film is. And you've very kindly brought this along so we can show our audience exactly that with Ghost and Shell. Oh, yes. Great film. Really great film. Good um, film. And again, one of these weird things that a lot of people work on a movie and then the movie vanishes. I think it should have done far better than it did. And the reviews should have been better, I think. What was your experience of working on this? And, and tell us a little bit about putting the sound together for Ghost and Shell. Well, I got brought in. I think Rupert had been working with Clint Mansell. And I got brought in. I think they just wanted to try different textures or different tones or whatever and I start I was only going to do a couple of scenes and then I just started doing more mm -hmm. and I think it was the first time I'd worked on a film that I think that was just visually beautiful I, re I really never struggled with inspiration because you just sat there and you just saw this beautiful landscape that automatically gave you inspiration which well, you don't normally get yeah we're going to see the end scene from the film uh, right now. First, we're going to take a look at it without the music. So this is the end sequence from Ghost and Shell. My mind is human. My body is manufactured. I'm the first of my kind, but I won't be the last. We cling to memories as if they define us but what we do defines us. My ghost survived to remind the next of us that humanity is our virtue. I know who I am and what I'm here to do. It's so quiet, isn't it? <laughs> it's so weird. It's really bizarre, isn't it? And we never get the chance to see that kind of thing. You know, we always just see the end product. So let's go straight in and see that scene now with... Hopefully it's improved. <laughs> <laughs> human. My body is manufactured. I'm the first of my kind, but I won't be the last. We cling to memories as if they define us, but what we do defines us.
my ghost survived to remind the next of us that humanity is our virtue. And then the geishas were in um, in Japan. Because I, I was going to ask you about that because there's obviously a kind of cultural influence in terms of the location and yeah. the background there, in terms of bringing that in and weaving that really subtly into to the sounds and the music and yeah. the melodies and stuff as well. Yeah. So that was deliberate. Uh, no, you know the weird thing about it is I think it's like writing. I worked um, with Hans Zimmer on two of the Kung Fu Pandas, and each one. We never wrote Chinese music.、Mm-hmm. It was thinking of it more Westernized, so that when you actually recorded actual Chinese instruments, they couldn't play half the notes because it just it was impossible. So I think with that, I think if you didn't he- hear the geisha singing it, I don't think you'd you'd automatically. It, it's the colors, yeah, subtle colors on top.、Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't, I, I never once sat in the room with any of us. We and th- said, okay, let's add it. The biggest concern, really, was something like this: was to always try to make sure that we weren't going down a Blade Runner route, because visually, there's a hint. It's not a hint; it is just of that time. Yeah. So we never wanted to kind of start doing that, and that's original Blade Runner, not the new one.
how did you end up working with hand? Because you've, you've worked on so many... Yeah, 15 years. Wow. I was his assistant for 15 years. Wow. How did that, how did that start? Um, it started by failure of music college. I was at the Royal College of Music, Trinity College of Music, Guildhall, London College of Music. I think I'm yeah. missing one. <laughs> um, and um, I just never... <laughs> I was, yeah. And I really just didn't quite know what the next plan was, really, because I was running out of colleges. Um, and, um, um, and I was doing a lot of jingles, writing lots of jingles. And I, um, I wrote a letter to his company saying, do you um, need a tea boy? And I can make tea. And they said, well, don't fly. Uh, you were not gonna, we don't have that job, but if you're around, pop by. So I bought a ticket and I went over. Like a bad smell, I lingered, basically. Wow. And then... Strategically placing yourself. Uh, no, no, I was sitting in the kitchen, and um, a guy came in and said, who can play the piano? I need something, I need some music transcribed. And I said, oh, I can do that. And I couldn't, because I was dyslexic, I can't read. But I said, I, I said I'll do it, I can do it. Uh, basically, all night, I was sitting there, finger by finger, <laughs> looking, at this, looking at this notation. Um, and that was working for... Uh, a composer who's my second boss called Henning Lohner. My first ever guy that I worked for was Guy Mitchell, who's a fantastic composer. And so I worked for Henning, and then that kind of got me. Then I worked for Rupert Gregson Williams, the yeah. Wonder Woman, and The Crown. Yeah. And then I think, yeah, and then I, and then I just, I, I was just around. I, I think nine times out of ten, people with work, they get it, it's because they're just in the right place. I've seen a lot of people with zero talent get jobs because they're, they're around. <laughs> yeah. But, but that, that was it, really. And I think the first movie I worked on was Batman Begins. And again, it started off with, can you do this? And, and I couldn't. <laughs> so, so, um, this is great, there's hope for us Yeah, yet, yeah, or... basically lie. Um, <laughs> no, I worked in a programme called Logic, which is a sequencer, so I used to write in that and... Hans and everybody else use uh, Cubase, and it's totally different. But I just knew I've got this one opportunity, so what am I going to say, no? Yeah. So I said yes. And then I got the manual out, and I basically, for the weekend, was trying to write and read a manual on how to work it. <laughs> so that's, that's how it happened. And the list of films that you've worked on with him, with various hats on, be it <coughs> writing additional music, co-composing, cool, yep. and most recently producing a score for Dunkirk, which, yep. congratulations on Thank that. You. It's absolutely yeah. so, it, so intrinsic to how good that film is. Yeah, But I think Dunkirk, like many of the other films, has show it's the music side is a massive team. So many people that which don't get thanked or mentioned, and I think they see they see the one name. But really, there's just so many people. When you, when you look at a film project, the music side can come to over 100, 150. Mm. And 
it's, you've just got to have big teams and yeah, just a, a, a great team around you to get it to happen. Before we move on to the next film, are there a couple of moments from those 15 years that you're most proud of? Proud of? Or that are memorable? Memorable, no, not necessarily for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, I think it's uh, memorable. Yeah, every single one. Hmm. Because I think every single one, I had this luxury of sitting in the back of a room and watching how to do it and how not to do it. And I think that's why being an assistant has just helps people. Yeah, you sit there and you get to witness Chris Nolan do a masterclass in filmmaking. You know, those are luxuries, and, and, and Ron Howard, and all, and all these fantastic filmmakers. And then also, which I was so spoilt with, which now, now I'm kind of starting my own career, really, was the luxury of orchestras, which really people take for granted. Yeah. And we were just able to kind of have the most amazing orchestras or any concept you know 20 drummers 20 drummers you can have it you know it's, it's difficult now because sometimes it's like you do a movie and you've got two violas and a double bass that's all you can <laughs> that's all you can afford half the time but it's um having all those opportunities i think also just you know learning from these people yeah i started taking it for granted after a while being able to sit in a room with hands and just when he plays something he says what do you think really now, what a ridiculous question. What do I think? Yeah, his name comes up so much, obviously, in this in the podcast. Yeah. And I think it was Ron Howard who we were lucky enough to speak to who described his world as Hansylvania, I think is how he described it. Yes, he, Ron's got that phrase about having the, the, uh, the lab always open yeah. with experimentation. Yeah. My goodness, he's an Oscar-winning composer and he's quite insecure about what he makes, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, I heard as well from someone else that worked with him, I think it was Guy Ritchie, who's all he wants to be secretly is 
the lead guitarist in a rock band. Oh, he's doing that? I know. He's but on with tour, a 45 so. piece orchestra yeah. behind him. <laughs> no, um, but I, I think he wants to be, he's not a composer, he's a filmmaker and then a composer. And I think, again, the ego of a composer can take over and want to write the big moment. And he's always been focused in the film. Which is ironic, because when you go to Wembley and watch them on stage... Have you seen... Did you see Not the yet, show? no. Yeah, well, it's amazing. And, and, like, they do a montage the first ten... I don't know if anybody else saw it here, but the first ten minutes is, like, that film. Oh, my, that film. That film. You know, it's your, <laughs> yeah. it's your life. Yeah. Driving Miss Daisy, and it's just shocking. Yeah. Another director who talked very highly of working with you on a film that I thoroughly enjoy called War on Everyone, oh, yes. John Michael McDonough. That film was just a great, great fun to work on because it was out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Because I always end up doing a lot of orchestral music, which I'm, I don't listen to classical music and I don't, I kind of just learned how to do it. So uh, they wanted a composer that was going to do that kind of funk retro sound, which I have never done in my life. Quite specific as well. He, specific, yeah. he knows when he came to the podcast, he's the only person who's come with notes, and he said that's what I'm like. You yeah. know, in terms of I know exactly what. Oh I want. yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you get three different types of director. You get some that really know what they're wanting, so there's no point trying to bring anything new to the table. Yeah. You get others that will use the very simple syllables, shit, <laughs> um, um, <laughs> and look at you like, what have I just done employing you? And, and, and walk out the room. You know, and then you get other types that just, they're writing the script and they're listening to music. And it was very clear um, with a lot of the songs in the movie, he knew they were in the script. Yeah. He talked actually about a club scene. So the club scene and the music is, you wrote and yeah. he specifically so, asked you to write uh, a dance track. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, so normally the composer doesn't end up doing songs really rare but there two reasons i think sometimes to license a song is a lot of money not that's the reason why he asked me yeah. but, <laughs> but it's yeah there's a commercial that i know of at the moment yeah. that where the song to license a song is 1.4 million and in a movie to get a, a famous song can come to about half a million a lot of money yeah especially when that can end up being more than your whole school 
for, for two hours of music. Anyway, so, uh, but that wasn't the reason why he asked me. He, he knows my love of deep house It's a trance. really good dance track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I think the point was, was that whatever they had never worked. And I think sometimes you get that. And also because everybody in that scene are dancing to silence, basically. There's nothing going on apart from somebody in the back from the crew shouting, be happy. Did they not even like play anything in? Do you think no. so that they could at least be in? No, because because originally I think there was more there was more talking scenes, and and okay. if you've got music, you can't hear the act at all. So everybody right to so they, their uh, movements. Uh, yeah, sometimes they have somebody in the back clapping, so everybody tries to dance in time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a really awkward thing to watch. Yeah. It must be so awkward for all the extras. Yeah. But um, but then sometimes they'll give them a track tempo wise. Sometimes. And interesting as well with that particular scene that he went from that track that you wrote to this yeah. random, you know, slightly yeah. lesser, lesser known REM track. REM, yeah, which yeah, yeah. nobody really knew yeah. of. Which, again, with that song, tried different ones. I wrote a couple, and there was just something just genius about that, that song yeah. that just got the mood. And it just it felt fitted, but just really just perfect. Can we talk about 13 Hours? What's your memories of that production and, and working on that? Michael you know, Bay. Michael Bay is, I think he's one of the best filmmakers. And some people may not like his films, but when you watch a Bay movie, it's beautiful. It may be action, it may be popcorn, but it's, I think when you look at the way he, he sets a scene up, it's mm. really stunning. And I had semi-known Michael, I'd worked on three of the Transformers movies but always kind of in the background. And then this movie came up and he wanted to try something, so I got to work on it. I love the movie, and I think that it's one of his best movies. 
And I think that when people say it's a Michael Bay movie, they may think differently. And I think in Britain it wasn't really seen, really. But um, he's just an astonishing filmmaker. And I think that there's an impression of him, mm -hmm. which I, I've never seen. And I think, and I, and I kind of joke when he's, you know, the comment is shit. But, <laughs> but he, he would use that. But it took a while to understand what that meant. <laughs> because, because it's a facial, it's a way it's delivered. And there would be a silence and you think about it. Apart from shit, what were the, com the conversations that you had, though, in terms no, of... that was it. That was it. No, okay. um, no um, <laughs> conversation was really not to be patronising. This was a passion project from his heart, and that's why it's so important to him. And the music, he did not want to go down the route of doing something that's this... I think the, the term rara we used all the time. And it was that level of rara and shit. You know, you, you, were, you were kind of... Oh, oh, oh. Um, and I think that it was never really about him. It was about the story. This was a true story. And the music was not meant to kind of be bigger than the movie and patronising or, or over the top. And I think also it was one of these rare movies where you don't end up with a lot of temp music, which is a big conversation a lot that. of the time. <laughs> I've grown to like it. Okay. The point is, is that I think you hate it when you get told you've got to copy it and you've got to rip it off, which you get told. Wow. But I think sometimes what it's doing is telling you what's not in the scene. Yeah. Recently I was working on something and the director was like, this actress just did not give me what I needed. And you're like, why? And then you watch it, and then it was, there was just something missing. Yeah. So for some reason, that day was just not, it didn't work out. So musically, you're trying to help. And I find more often than none now, when you get down to it, there's something, something missing, or something's happened. And I think with this, weirdly, he tempt, most of the temp was, was my music that I wrote for him. So constantly, the whole process was I was writing, giving it to him and then he was tracking it and editing and, and then, then when listening to it, there may be a section as a, a five minute piece where it did go a bit off. And then, uh, so we'd edit it and change it. And the different roles that you have taken on in different films and Captain Phillips, what was your, what was, um, how were you involved in Captain um, Phillips? Captain Phillips, I got brought in to help out and um, worked on just the end. And again, that was, one of those things which I've done a lot throughout my, my life is I get brought on sometimes to help. Yeah. And, um, but the directors that bring you on are, you know, they're big hitters. They're yes. big, impressive people who are obviously impressed by your work. Yeah. And, you know, on Captain Phillips... 
oh, yes. green grass and that, you know. Yeah, yes, it's very fortunate. I can't, I can't look at it say any other way because you just, you, yes, you're able to kind of work with just amazing craftsmen and women. It's just, it's just uh, very fortunate. And also, you kind of get to see what it takes to be at their standard. And I imagine from us talking to a wonderful selection of directors so far yeah. in the podcast, the, everyone has a different process. Everyone. Every single one, and every single one you're you're petrified about, <laughs> because the worst thing is that people tell you things about them, <laughs> yeah. and then and then it's like what well, I've got a great rela- uh, relationship with Nick Love, who did the Sweeney, and and I always was quite petrified about working on that, because <laughs> because people had told me about Nick, and I, and then he's like a pussycat. But I understand where, where maybe somebody would say something in the wrong way because he's just committed to, to the film. Yeah. And I think it's the same with a lot of people. You may hear a bad story about somebody, but it's because they're, they're, they're doing something that none of us do. They yeah. live and breathe something for four or five years of their life. There's no weekends away. They're writing their script, then they go into production, and it's, it's a long process. What was the conversation you had with Paul? What, what, were you, what was the I, I got involved with this because Hans was on it, but it was a long period. It was maybe like two, three months on the one queue is a long time, especially when sometimes I've been brought in to do films in like two weeks. Wow. Yeah, complete scores in two weeks. Complete scores? Yeah, okay. yeah. You just don't sleep and you have a, you have a lot of Diet Coke. <laughs> What's the ideal scenario? At what point there is of no production? such one because no? I think I think I think I think you can have a lot of fun in two or three weeks. Okay. And the problem is, it's like writing a song. When somebody says, oh, "I wrote the song in 20 minutes," if the song's a success, you're a genius. If it's not, you should have spent longer on the song. <laughs> so, so I'm never going to say what films I did in two weeks. <laughs> um, but I think that you get this burst of energy when somebody says it's got to be done in three weeks. The hardest thing are themes and the colours and the tone, because I think once you've done that, you can then fly. And I think that it's the same as on a TV show. If it's 10 episodes long, if you've just got your 10 minutes of themes and what your style is and you play it to everybody and they listen to it and they go, that's not working, you're never going to get to 10 hours of music. But if it nails it, then you're off. I think it really does, it differs. I think if you've got an idea, then the three weeks are easy. But if you're wandering around miserable because you haven't got a clue, then you're in trouble. It's a long time since I've seen Captain Phillips and I love that film. Yeah. It's such a great film. We've got a clip from it right now.
execute. Not very, such a not good very child friendly. Such today, a good, <laughs> such a good film though. Let's talk Lego Batman movie. Yeah. Amazing score. That was a long period of time. Long period. Yes. Weirdly enough, I, I think one of the reasons for getting Lego Batman was because of 13 hours. Well, I heard a really interesting thing that you said, where Chris, McCall um, director, yeah. said to you that he saw the film being a cross between about a boy about done a, by Michael Bay. My, but yes. Is that what he said to you? About a boy. Yeah, about a boy meets my, Michael, Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Yeah. Because I think, I think, <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think that um, he had watched the film two or three times. Because I think gone are the days of you get somebody because he does animation. It just doesn't work that Well, anymore. you do everything, you know, kind of. Try. In terms of like home, you did the, yeah. you composed that, and you worked with with hand on Rango and yeah. things like that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't see there's any difference. Yeah. Um, but I think people used to. It's like people used to have a problem with composers doing games and TV. They were low on the ladder. Film composers did not speak to TV composers, uh, and especially game composers. You never did that. When did it change, and why did it change? I think things changed about ten years ago, and I think all of a sudden you started seeing film composers wanting to get into games because it was limitless. There's just nothing you can't do in a game. There's no boundaries. When you're composing for games, which you've done a lot of, Call of Duty was the first game? Yeah, you first were... ever game. Wow. writing, composing for the game, you don't know the narrative, really. Yeah. You no, know, no, because everybody's going to do it differently. Yeah. How do you write? Who are you writing yeah. for? Well, I was never a gamer. Yeah. And then I lost about two days of my life um, <laughs> going with everybody telling me, you should learn how to play games. So I did it, and I lost those two days because I was just, I had locked uh, wrist, <laughs> just sitting there. Um, and uh, I finally understood how important it was mm. and how people that play games rely on that music because they live and breathe it yeah and it immerses you i think more than a film i think people sitting there with headphones on in a black room by themselves it's more addictive i think because you're you're in it you're in control of the narrative almost yes so you you, you are yes more i think certain games i did a video game for beyond two souls that was more you knew the concept of it because of the way it was designed um, but everything else, yeah, you don't know if anybody's going to... And I think, I think that was the thing. We all used to think, oh, it's just people, boys wandering around with guns, firing things. And, that, <laughs> and it's, just, it's so much more than that now. Saying it's the future is ridiculous, because it is. Yeah. It? But it always has been. Anyway, that snobbery was there, and it changed. And I think game, game music now is far more experimental now. The great soundtracks, The Journey, um, Austin Wintry, was just really just changed it. And I think that, yeah, 10 years ago, you just saw a shift and all of a sudden all the film composers wanted to start doing games. Whereas before, all the game composers wanted to do movies. Yeah. So it's, it's totally different now.
With Lego Batman as well, I love that you brought back the original TV yeah, I had to. in there. It was a necessity. <laughs> you know, to me, to me, when I see Batman, I hear that. Yeah. I think in my head, but never said it out aloud to Chris Nolan, you should do that. <laughs> but, I was, uh, but, you know, it was just, you're too scared to say it because it's a stupid idea. But, um, but that's why I thought it was obvious. I thought it was during one of those scenes one had to do it. And also, it had to do it so that it, was, it wasn't a parody. It was le legitimate. That is his theme. And I think maybe for certain generations, now the younger ones maybe don't know, aren't aware of it. But I thought it was a necessity and it was, it was great. mentioned about that whole kind of snobbery going away in terms of gaming composers yeah. and TV and the incredible place that TV is in now is yeah. is is wonderful and you recently worked on Genius yeah. the Albert Einstein and it's a really clever clever score because there's almost two sides to it I don't know if anyone's seen it. it's a National Geographic 10-part series but it's it's really clever because you've got these I think anyway my interpretation you have these two elements to the score which is a kind of traditional score but then you have this electronic side of it which for me is almost like seeing inside his brain yeah. that kind of sort of the, almost like the genius part yes The whole concept was it's two different lives. The show shows the young Einstein and the old Einstein will never understand what's going on in their heads. We just can't. Yeah. And I think with Einstein, we knew about him, but I think we all kind of knew the basic things. And you see his complex lifestyle. To try to kind of understand what was going on in his head, we can't do. So the job was to try to create something new. It was kind of classical, but not, but modern. And television music, I think, far more experimental now. And I think it's creating better schools than film. I think. 10 hours worth. 10 hours worth, yes. 
Yes. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs>interesting because you've that and then there's the complete opposite of that where you you had one piece on this beautiful little film called the florida project which if you get the chance to see see it because it's yes. stunning little stunning film. film you have a beautiful piece of music at the end of that film. yes i'm not sure if anybody's figured out what that piece of music's based on at the end? Yeah. Nobody's figured it out. I thought it was obvious what I did. <laughs> oh, dear. Go on. Well, it's, it's a variation of the opening. Celebrate. Yeah. Well, I was, well, weirdly, I wrote down, it's like any film that starts with cool and the gang, <laughs> the gang celebrate, it's kind of like, I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah. the director didn't want any music throughout the film score wise so when I got the call about it everybody kept saying he doesn't want any music I thought why am I getting I thought maybe I'm getting a job to act finally <laughs> finally somebody sees my talent but um, they said no it's just for the end But I get it, again, I couldn't find a piece of music that did that. It's a child version. It's that kind of Disney, the, 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 yes. It's, it's a small it. world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, you do something and then it vanishes. And then there's breakfast TV on in the morning and everybody's talking about it as a new Oscar contender. It's, it's an amazing film. He's an exciting filmmaker. Yes. next that you can tell us about you've got the crown as uh, well yeah crown crown comes out in december so that one i'm doing with one of my f first bosses rupert gregson williams so we've been writing that together 
and that comes out in December. And then I just finished a Jerry Bruckheimer movie. I just did one. Yeah. Um, and um, I'm doing another. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, and um, um, you shouldn't take offence. Well, why did you grin when you said you it? You grinned at me <laughs> because you didn't want me to say it. But it's the score. Some people laughed. So the said score it. is fantastic. Uh, okay. The uh, score is incredible. Uh, uh, listen, I think it's a. I think it's a good movie. You know, when you read reviews, it, it's just it's horrendous. Yeah. And people don't spend years of their life to produce rubbish. Like, weirdly enough, they just don't. Yeah. They don't sit there going, I'm going to make sure that nobody understands a plot, everybody <laughs> thinks acting is wood, and they just yeah. don't do that. But it's the type of movie that I used to watch when I was yeah. young. I'd sit there, and when you saw Con Air coming on, you did not leave the house. <laughs> you know, it's just what you yeah. did. You know, Jerry Bruckheimer is, just has made some of the most influential films of all time. And as a youth, I'd sit there, and, and when you saw that Brookheimer Simpson logo came on, you knew, oh, great, yeah. Cage is going to kick ass or something. <laughs> and it was just, and, and so I'm doing another movie with him called 12 Strong. Nowadays, yeah. composers get fired so regularly <laughs> <laughs> that unlike the act, well, actually, I was going to say, unlike actors, you can't get replaced. Yeah. But it's happening. You can. Yeah. You know, right <laughs> it's, it's literally happening now. But yeah, so it's like everybody's always so keen to talk about things. And, and yeah. now I just wait for, if I know the poster, not even the poster, actually. <laughs> I did something last year where the poster had another name on it and I came and replaced them. <laughs> the rest to be decided. Um, we've run out of time and I can't thank you enough for coming and, and doing this for us as our first live podcast. Oh, I was the that. guinea pig, of course, You're yes. The first one and what yes. a bloody great guinea pig you were, sir. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you guys being here for this and for BFI as well for helping us and being part of the Big Tour as well. Have a great day, guys. Yes. Uh, the wonderful Lauren Balfe. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. From the score to Geostorm, that's Nature Warning by Lorne Balfe, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking in partnership with the EE e. BAFTAs.
My huge thanks to Lauren for joining us at the BFI to talk about his work. As I said, we'll put out the conversation with Alex Garland, Jeff Barrow and Ben Salisbury in the next few weeks. And if you want to check out my chat with Lynn Ramsey, please head to edithbowman.com, which is also the place to catch up with all of our previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast. If you can, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do encourage your friends to subscribe if you like what you hear. Next up is director Todd Haynes, who I spoke to what seems like an eternity ago about the fabulous Wonderstruck. He was brilliant and I've been desperate to share it with you ever since. So I'm very much looking forward to the pleasure of your company then.